is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to dip into Shark Tank because it's a great show, and it's about everything we love about America. Free enterprise, starting businesses, winning, losing. Well, Stephen Chen is in the Shark Tank in this segment, dog by his side with his product called Pet Gnostics. My name is Steven Chen. This here is Austin. I am the founder of Petnostics, and I'm here today seeking $300,000 in exchange for 10% of my company. Wow. What is Petnostics? <laughs> we all love our pets like our children, and it's important to monitor their health regularly. Unlike children, though, our pets cannot talk to us, and that's why I started Petnostics. Petnostics allows you to check your pet's health instantly by analyzing your dog or cat's urine with your smartphone. So let's pretend that this blue liquid is Austin's urine. So here we have Austin's sample in the Petnostics cup, which has a special lid that's integrated with the same chemical test strips that vets use in their clinics. Once you get your pet's urine in our cup, simply screw on the lid and flip the cup over. These test pads will then change colors depending on your pet's health and our app will scan the cup and analyze the color changes, telling you about possible health issues. Uh, gross. <laughs> so it comes down to sample time. And guest shark Ashton Kutcher has an obvious question. How do you collect the dog pee? Austin and I would like to know if urine. Urine? Oh, oh no. Um, I have samples here for you today, and I'll be happy to answer any questions you may have. That's the cutest dog. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, Steve, can I ask you a question? Yes. How do you capture the urine sample? (laughs) It's a good question. Very good question. So pet parents know that pets relieve themselves on schedule. So for me and Austin, when I'm walking him, I know when he's about to pee, I just get the cup behind him, and I'm able to get the sample that way. (laughs) You (laughs) have to step the cup (laughs) under your dog and letting your dog (laughs) piss in your hand and the cup to capture the sample. They give you a glove. (laughs) For pet parents that have a little bit more trouble collecting the urine, we have the... Petnostics urine collector. <laughs> it's a little ladle with an extendable handle. And so like a for stick. female dogs, or yeah, you, and so when Austin, if, if there's a female dog and they um, squat, you can just kind of you know get underneath there oh. and get the urine that way. How much do you actually need to capture for you the diagnostics a, to work? Just a little teeny bit, yeah, for the strips to change color. Oh, that's so good. Well, you know, from this mirthful moment. Mr. Wonderful, well, he wants to get down to business. What does it cost the consumer to do all this stuff and get all the paraphernalia for pea collection? We retail the cups for $10. What no, does yeah, it cost you? It costs me $2 right now to make one of these. How low do you think you can get it at volume? Um, we think we can get our cost down to about 90 cents. It's a one-time lab, right? It's a one-time use cup. Okay. Right. How many cups have you sold it to how many customers? So cups, we've sold about 10,000 cups. What? Well, in what period of time? When did you start? We started in April 2014. How have you sold them? So we've sold right now just through our website and through local retail stores in Southern California. It's very impressive. And so the leading vets, they liken our product to a check engine light. You know, see, if there's something wrong potentially under the hood, then you still have to have the expert, the vet, take care of it. Well, before anyone hears sales numbers, Robert, jump ship. I'm not sold on the business model. Vets want to make more money, not less money. Mm -hmm. I believe in this product, but I also have to really believe in a very clear distribution channel. Mm -hmm. I think you're early. I'm out. Thank you. Steven gives us his sales projections. Mr. Wonderful 
smells weakness or P. We're projecting $200,000 in sales this Okay, year. so you're not making any money yet. So next year, we're projecting hopefully $400,000 in sales with these new specific disease tests. That's, that market makes up 590 million um, tests that potentially can be done. But it's not clear yet, Stephen, what the go-to-market distribution strategy is. We're talking about vets, direct sales online, maybe retail if you can find enough margin. Mm -hmm. That's not clear yet. These are all to be determined, right? Yes. There's a bit of risk in your deal in terms of what's going to happen. You're a little pre-revenue-ish. Mm -hmm. You know, what I love about Shark Tank deals is when it's already proven what the channel is going to work, I pour $300,000 on it. It's just like gasoline on fire. It explodes. You're not there yet. Okay. Ouch. Mark Cuban is out. Here's why. I'm very involved on the human side. I've got investments in a company called Biomine that does blood um, analysis. My point is that being strip-driven, I think, will have a, a, a life cycle. I just don't see it as a long-term life cycle. I see that as a problem. I'm out. Okay. Thank you. Ouch. Well, what about Ashton? He doesn't want to get his hands wet. My biggest concern is still around the very first question that we had around collection. I think that you're going to be disrupted by a bunch of other platforms that can do the same thing that you do without the messiness of having to do a urine sample. <laughs> and so for that reason, I'm out. Thank you. We all know that Mr. Wonderful isn't afraid to get a little dog urine on his hands if there's a profit to be made. Well, here's what he has to offer. I'm more concerned about distribution risk, how you blow this thing out so you sell a few million dollars of it. I want to reflect that in my offer. I'll do the 300000 for 15%. Interesting. Wow. You know, Kevin... I've watched the show a lot. Your deals always have ratchets, levers. You have some loyalty, some plug-in. No, I'm hooking. really good at that. I'm the most creative shark instructor. Mark's learning from me all the time. You can call it creative. I'll learn you what not to I do. Call it, I call it founder abuse, but you yeah. call it creative. I, I, I'm really curious about why you're offering a straight equity deal on this. I do them occasionally, but I think this is a play on trying to figure out which channel works and then pouring gasoline on it. QVC Queen Lori has an offer of her own. I've sold a lot of products over the last 18 years, and I have seen so many people spend so much on their pets, and they want to make sure that they're okay. I'm going to make you an offer. 300000 for 20%. Well, between Kevin and Lori, who will get this deal? Would you consider 300000 for 15%? Ooh, equaling Kevin's offer, Lori. Mm. I feel at 15%, you know, as much as I really do love this, and I think it's a great product, and my Queen, come here for a second. Be, the king is speaking. Uh, if you want to split the deal, I'll do 50-50 for 20%. 20%? This is, this is because you didn't move fast enough in some ways. 20%. 50-50, king and queen. And you had 15. Queen and joker. It's the only offer on the table now. I'm in. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Good presentation. And I get the dog. Thank you so much. Good idea. Thank you so much. And another great shake shark. Shark tank, not shake tank. And we got to take a potty break.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History series, which, as always, is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all the things that matter in life, including sports. And today we have a sports story for you. Sometimes we bring you stories of our nation's great leaders like George Washington. Other times, it's our greatest artists like Johnny Cash. And today it's one of our great coaches who died on this day in history in 2009, NBA Hall of Famer Chuck Daly. Chuck didn't start off like a Hall of Famer. And by the way, it goes all the way back to 1955, where he started coaching high school basketball in Pennsylvania, a town called Punxsutawney, where he coached high school basketball. And then from there, on to assistant coaching positions at Duke and Boston College. And then it was at the University of Pennsylvania that Daly caught a lot of people's attention. He turned that Ivy League school into a powerhouse. He stopped coaching there in 77, but the players he recruited and trained up in 1979 made it to the Final Four, a little Ivy League team. With all those restrictions on recruiting, that academic rigor, a bunch of guys who probably couldn't ride the pine at the University of Kentucky. I mean, weren't even recruited at UCLA, and they're in the Final Four. And that was Chuck Daly's doing. And instead, Chuck was picked up by the Philadelphia 76ers and the Cleveland Cavaliers, bounced around, and made his real mark in 1989 and 90 when the team he molded together The bad boys known as the Detroit Pistons. Isaiah Thomas, Dennis Rodman, Bill Lambeer. Just great basketball teams. Great basketball rivalries. In 1992, he became the very first coach of the so-called Olympic Dream Team. This is the first time we ever let the professionals play. Up until then, it was college players. But in 92, my goodness. And by the way, no one else should be allowed to be called the Dream Team. Because Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Karl Malone... Patrick Ewing, among many, many other giants. Imagine coaching that team and managing those personalities. And so as we often do with our great sports stories, we're getting an assist by Pat Williams, the co-founder of the Orlando Magic and the author of over 80 books on leadership. And by the way, back when Pat was the general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers, he helped to hire and recruit Chuck Daly as an assistant coach, which was Chuck's first NBA job, and of course he went from the University of Pennsylvania, well, right uptown. One of Pat's books is titled Daily Wisdom, which contains 52 of Chuck Daly's famous sayings that everyone called Chuckisms. And we also have Pat's commentary on them, too. Here's Pat Williams on one of his favorite Chuckisms. Uh, Chuckism number two, I'm not a coach, I'm a salesman. Chuck always knew his role was more about convincing people than anything else. When he joined the Magic as head coach in 1997, I was excited to be reunited with him. We were both much deeper into our careers and could talk and analyze life and sports from a much more mature point of view. Anyway, the interesting thing happened. Uh, Chuck, in his typical animated fashion, declared, I'm not a coach, I'm a salesman. What do you mean by that, Chuck, I asked. Well, all I do all day long is sell, he said. I'm selling these players on their role on the team or on the number of shots they'll take or the 
strategy for the next game, and then I go upstairs and start dealing with the front office. I've got to sell them on why this player isn't working out or why we should be making this trade. And every time I talk to the media, all I'm doing is selling them too. I'm selling them on the progress of the team, our game and season goals, on why I did this and didn't do that in a particular game. I guess I'm selling the media, so they'll go out and sell the fans, so they'll be supportive. Sell, sell, sell. That's all I do. I've thought about that a lot, and I realize Chuck was right. When you get down to it, that's all any of us do. We're all salespeople. Kids are selling mom and dad on why they should stay up later. Young men are selling young women on why they should go out. Corporations are selling clients on why they need their latest product. With every new book deal, I'm out there selling publishers on why they should print my most recent great idea. I often chuckle when young salespeople say to me, my goal is to get out of sales so I can get into management. Buddy, I'm thinking when that day comes and you get into management, then you'll really need to be a salesperson. And the stakes will be a whole lot higher. One way to learn is by studying great role models like Chuck Daly. And another Chuckism from Pat Williams. Chuckism number six, the best asset a coach has is selective hearing. Former Pistons executive Harry Hutt remembers a night toward the end of a season. The players were tired and ready for play of the playoffs to start. In this particular game, the Pistons are down by 15 at the half, Hutt-related. Near the end of halftime, Chuck gathers the players in a huddle and is somewhat animated, lecturing them about their lack of effort and their resulting poor play. About a minute in, an angry voice let out a loud invective, I'll let you imagine it. Everybody wheels around, and it's Dennis Rodman, visibly upset, Harry went on. Chuck kicks into selective hearing loss, continues talking, and Rodman shouts out again. Chuck ignores Rodman, continues his speech, and then gives the old one, two, three, let's go, acting like nothing happened. Somehow, the... Selective hearing loss worked because in the second half, the Pistons rallied for a last-minute win, and Rodman was sensational. Because of Chuck's hearing loss, what could have been an unpleasant scuffle turned into another win for the Pistons. He knew it wasn't personal with Dennis. He was just an intense competitor who wanted to win, and Rodman always referred to Chuck as his surrogate father. Duke University coach Mike Krzyzewski has never forgotten this advice from Chuck. To be a good NBA coach, you need to be hard of hearing and have poor eyesight. In Chuck's case, the memory, the hearing, and eyesight impairment were purely intentional. Learning the art of selective hearing saved Chuck from many an embarrassing, heated, and undoubtedly public episode. Can anyone out there relate to moments like this? Mom and dad, Los Angeles freeway driver, leaders in board meetings. Let his Chuckism inspire you to tune out what doesn't ultimately matter and achieve your goals in creative new ways. So well said. 
Selective hearing loss can save friendships, marriages, and your life. And speaking of Dennis Rodman, here is Rodman himself talking about what Chuck Daly meant to him. I mean, he's like, he's like a father figure because I didn't really have anybody in Detroit. Uh, I didn't really know anybody. And uh, I was 25 years old coming from the ghetto. And um, it's very difficult to at least blast in, in, in the spotlight at such, a, at such a middle age as I was. Because a lot of kids today are coming in at 19, 20. Uh, I came in 25 and, uh, and blossomed at literally... <laughs> At 27, 28, and a lot of guys have always been successful at that age, but uh, I was just really still getting my ears wet at the po- at the moment because I I didn't I been anywhere you know besides you know Texas and Missouri and that was it you know stuff like that but I never been around the country like that and and I got used to it very quick and um, and the guys around me Chuck Daly really uh really uh, put some intuitive things in my head. He kept me balanced. He kept me level-headed. He kept me understanding that the fact that, you know, this is a business. This is a game. Uh, enjoy yourself. Don't put yourself in position to uh, um, get influenced by certain people. And uh, he just kept telling me, Dennis, come to my house. I want you to come over here because, you know, I didn't have no family. I just listen to him all the time, him and his wife and Terry, his daughter. Uh, we sit there at the house, you know, before you go in his house, he had white carpet. Because, you know, you walk in his house, take your shoes off like you're in Japan. And so it's like you don't walk in his house, take the shoes off, okay, great. And uh, he had this old badass little chihuahua just trying to bite people. But uh, you know, I just, that's what I like about it, because everything about him was very cool, man. And just, he kept everything very level-headed. Kept everything very level-headed. Rodman was never better under anybody than Chuck Daly. It was a remarkable relationship those two guys had, and the least likely mentor-mentee in world history, Chuck Daly and Dennis Rodman, the quality and nature of Chuck Daly's leadership. More on the life of Chuck Daly here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our This Day in History, celebrating the life of Chuck Daly, the Hall of Famer and basketball coach who died in 2009. He coached the high school, college, and professional level and took the Detroit Pistons and turned them into one of the great teams of all time. And we're talking with Pat Williams to hear about Chuck's leadership, his style, and the Chuckisms that he became known for. So let's go back to Pat to hear another one of those Chuckisms that apply to so much more than basketball. Chuckism number 13, we have too many meetings in basketball, and they will kill you. You can talk too much. Players get tired of your voice. Chuck had an interesting philosophy about meetings. He said every time out during a game is a meeting. Every pregame discussion is a meeting. Every halftime is a meeting. Every practice session is another meeting. 
players can only handle so much, and they will start tuning you out. Former Magic assistant Tom Sterner remembers a meeting one morning in New York before a game with the Knicks. We were in a conference room on the 20th floor overlooking the river. I was delivering the scouting report when Chuck, who was standing by the window, starts yelling, Hey, hey, over here, everybody to the window. The players didn't know what to think. Chuck pointed to the river and said, See that ferry? That's the one I took from New Jersey when I was coaching the Nets. That was the end of the meeting. Chuck told me later, I thought they were getting bored and needed a shake-up. They'd had enough. Well, we beat the Knicks that night, and I got a lesson from Chuck about studying people and knowing what makes them tick. Coach Eric Musselman was an assistant with the Magic when Chuck was head coach. Musselman recalls Chuck believed strongly in the importance of letting your assistants have a voice. He told me, don't call timeouts unnecessarily unless you have a serious message to deliver to the troops. They've already heard you too much. Chuck taught me a great leadership principle, said Pistons executive Dan Hauser. Sometimes the fewer words we speak, the better. Over 100-plus games, the players can get tired of your voice. Chuck would let the assistants talk during practice, during half times, and during pregame sessions. The players will turn you off if you talk ceaselessly. Then when you do talk, you have their attention. The bottom line, let others speak. There's a good lesson here for parents. Don't talk your children to death. Just like NBA players, they will tune you out, and some of your best parental speeches will end up on the locker room floor. Pick your spots wisely. Don't be afraid to let others speak into your kids' lives, teachers, coaches, pastors. It's amazing how often those voices reinforce the lessons you want your children to learn in ways they will actually get and then remember for years to come. When you do speak, make sure it's the right message at the right time. Timing is critical for maximum impact. It's true that the less said delivers the biggest wallop. Give it a try and see what happens. Oh, and about all those meetings, do you really need them? If they're taking away from productivity, maybe you don't. I'm not knocking the powwows. We all need to see each other's faces now and then and know that we're on the same page. But perhaps one or two fewer timeouts would suffice. And sometimes Chuck Daly let another kind of sound be the voice. When the Pistons were in trouble, sometimes Chuck Daly would call a timeout. And he would sit there, kind of wiggle his tongue around, because he kind of had this thing with his tongue, he'd wiggle around. He didn't say anything. And he just let guys stew. And then he said, okay, fellas, huddle up, let's go. He didn't say a word. And they would go out and just take care of business. Really smart. Don't say anything. Really smart. The power of saying nothing. Here again is Pat Williams with a final Chuckism for this story. And by the way, Pat, again, the co-founder of the Orlando Magic, the first guy who gave Chuck Daly his first professional job. If you want more, get Pat's book, Daily Wisdom. Let's take a listen. Chuckism number 48 
What are you doing? Broadcaster Jim Gray was Chuck's close friend and has an endless supply of stories about traveling together and hearing Chuck ask this startling question. If I turned a street too soon, Jim recalls, Chuck would say, what are you doing? At a restaurant, if I ordered incorrectly, it was, what are you doing? It's the kind of question that definitely gets your attention. One weekend, when Chuck was head coach for the Magic, we were all flying to New York for the NBA All-Star Weekend. My wife, Ruth, came along, too, to enjoy time with me at all the gala events. As usual, I had a pile of books with me and read the entire weekend, including during the game. I didn't realize Chuck was watching. But in retrospect, I'm glad he was. In an opportune moment, he pulled me aside. What are you doing, Chuck asked. Do you realize you haven't spoken a word to your wife this entire trip? All you've done is read those books. You'd better watch it. When I told Ruth what he said, her response was, Thank goodness for Chuck Daly. Is there a Chuck Daly in your life? He could be your best friend, your life mate, your spiritual partner, your mom or dad, or a mentor, but we all need someone who will whip our heads around at just the right moment with that question. What are you doing? So pay attention. Chuck's question might just be the wake-up call you need to get your life in order. What a great story. And let's close out with another legendary NBA coach. And this guy knows a thing or two about leading men and leading athletes. And it's Pat Riley, remembering his arch rival. I mean, there was no bigger rivalry than the Lakers and the Pistons. Pat Riley, remembering Chuck Daly. And I remember I took one thing from, from that program, and it's his favorite Irish prayer. And I say it all the time, and probably some of you have already heard me read this, but, you know, for Chuck, may the road rise up to meet you. You know, may the wind be always at your back. You know, may the sun shine warmly down upon your face and the rain fall softly on your fields. And until we meet him again... Uh, God will surely hold you and your family in the palm of his hand. I've been carrying this card ever since his funeral. And I give it away to people. And, uh, and so I'll never forget Chuck Daly. And that's something when a guy influences and moves you that much that you keep a bunch of cards on you and hand them out to random strangers and you yourself are in the Hall of Fame and one of the great coaches of all time. And I think it had to do with Chuck's wisdom and not his coaching. And I think that's what you'll learn when you read Pat's book. And by the way, do get the book, um, because you'll love it. Again, it's called Daily Wisdom, D-A-L-Y, Wisdom, and you can get it at Amazon.com, as you can get so much of Pat's work. What I really loved about Chuck Daly, I'll never forget, someone had asked him, who was the best offensive coach you ever, ever coached? And he said, Dennis Rodman. And people went, well, what are you talking about? The guy doesn't score much. Um, how could that be? And he goes, well, he gets all the rebounds, so that frees up my guards to run. He doesn't shoot, so it frees up my guards to shoot. He sets picks, which frees my guards to shoot. And the only time he shoots is when he grabs an offensive rebound and then puts it in the hole, and it's a dunk. And so when he was scoring his 12 or 14 points a game, he was taking no shots. 
He was taking second shots he created. He was creating more shots for the rest of the team. He was taking care of the defense. He was rebounding every rebound so Isaiah Thomas could go off on the fast break. In other words, he's the greatest offensive player I ever coached. And what an insight into thinking about thinking about life, the assets you have before you, and how to think about things outside the box. He really was an outside-the-box thinker, a great coach, a great man. Chuck Daly died on this day in history. As always, our This Day in Histories brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to their website, hillsdale.edu, to hear their great free online courses. This is Our American Stories, Chuck Daly's story. And this is our American stories. No, that's not the sound of our editing bay before we get to work. Though I wish it was. Uh, it's just a, a dad goofing off with his kids, making them laugh, tickling them, teasing them, making facial gestures. No better sound in the world than a human being laughing, young or old. Somehow as we get older, we, we don't laugh as much. Shame on us. I think that's why we have kids. And then they grow up, and we want to pull our hair out. And... We love doing stories out of the personal journal, the part of the Wall Street Journal that we know America loves, and the more Americans can get in touch with the personal part of the Wall Street Journal, called the personal journal, the better it's in there in the fourth section of the paper. I start my day every day going there first to get my sensibilities tickled. And one story in particular caught our attention a while back, and it was, Why Are Some People More Ticklish Than Others? That was really the title. And I'm a curious guy, and it has a picture of a mom, by the way, tickling her child, and it's a beautiful picture. And I want to lead with the read of the the piece. It starts off like this. Wiggly fingers approaching the armpits can elicit giggles from some people. For others, even a feather caressing the toes will bring about no response. Scientists are perplexed by the variability and the origin of the tickle response. And that's why we brought Heidi Mitchell on to join us. Heidi, thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. So how, but before I even start, where do you get this story? I mean, how does this story stumble upon you? <laughs> well, we have this column every other Tuesday in the personal journal section, and they are, they are quirky. I'll give you that. Um, they, this one came from the editor of the section who happens to have, mm, I think, a three-year-old. And so she was, it was actually her idea. She was wondering, how come he's so ticklish and I'm not ticklish at all? So we're all like around, hovering around 40 and did a little census and none of us are ticklish anymore. So we wanted to know why the heck not. Wait a second. Wait not? a second. You work with a bunch of people who aren't ticklish anymore. What's wrong with you all? <laughs> well, you know, we took very scientifically a feather around and tickled people and they didn't, they didn't giggle. <laughs> they giggled. You know, we giggle because we think it's fun and funny. Right. But um, but that, that that response of the actual tickle feeling, 
it just is, it isn't there anymore. And so tell me this. Pretty much and, nobody. No, and, and nobody. Tell me, that, and by the way, this is the burning question column, by the way, in the personal journal. And this obviously was the burning question we you had fun, to solve. interesting people at the Wall Street Journal that happened to not be ticklish, along with the rest of the world. Wow. So, so let's, let's work this down now. So you went and you talked to neuroscientists and one David J. Linden, and he was at John Hopkins. I mean, pretty fancy name, pretty fancy uh, hospital. What, what did, what did, what did he teach you? Well, I love this guy because he spends all day studying um, mice in the lab, um, and he happens to be, so he's a neuroscientist, and he works on um, various responses in the brain, but he doesn't specifically work on touch. He's just a fanboy, is what he calls himself, so he is a fanatic about our sense of touch and thinks that it involves many, many different senses. So he went around and spoke to all of these experts in the field and wrote this book the science, t- called Touch, The Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. And he's fascinated and, with the subject, and he's fascinating to talk to, and he has so many thoughts, and he's a fantastic interview, which is kind of a rare find. <laughs> yep. Um, so, yeah, so he was our guy, and he gave, you know, we like to call it an informed opinion because uh, a lot of times science isn't totally behind uh, a lot of the subjects that we cover like tickling not a ton of research on it well tell me this then he you know and i'm going to read because i love reading from writers work um and then you just advance the ball at this point early in the article you write some scientists have argued that being ticklish is a defensive reflex against attack but dr linden finds that explanation wanting why is that so if you think about it it kind of seems like that's a good explanation, right? Like the places where you're super ticklish, you know, around your neck, where you have a major gland, where you have major uh, vein around your, under your armpit. So that works. But then when you think about like your bottoms of your feet, well, that's not going to kill you in battle, right? Right. If you're, if you're stabbed in the foot or something like that. So that's sort of, that's why Dr. Lennon believes that this isn't really a fully thought through idea. So he doesn't think that it's, that that's why we've evolved. All these things are evolutionarily based. I mean, I'm a firm believer in trying to understand why we do what we do based on evolutionary, um, devices. So, so yeah, so we just, he doesn't believe, and I agree with him. He doesn't believe that, that, it's a reflex against attack. It doesn't seem to carry through. So then he goes on, and I'll read again. He compares being ticklish to having an itch, which most experts believe evolved as a protective measure against infestation by insects or worms. Talk about that. Kind of gross, but yep. kind of makes sense. Because when you're, in your itching, um, when you have an itch, um, like a tickle, it's a specific kind of feeling that requires an immediate response. So um, unlike pain, which can be chronic or you can, it can linger and you cannot deal with it, like a headache or a throbbing or um, something even that's acute, but passing um, an, an itch, like a tickle, it, it provokes a very immediate response. So you might think that the, the, the tickle response is like, oh, there's like a worm crawling on me. I'm living in the cave. I'm thinking of cavemen. Right. And I'm living in a cave and there's like a bug or something. And so it's ticklish. And so I go, ah, and, I, and I immediately push it away. Right. Um, but honestly, and that seems to be a pretty good explanation because bugs tend to be tickly on us. Um, but, you know, it hasn't been scientifically proven. Yeah, and it's interesting. You, you wrote here still, the neuroscientist says, 
We honestly don't know why humans are ticklish. By the way, I love it when a scientist can have some theories, but then just finally admit, look, we study this eight different ways. I'll tell you something else that was interesting, though. He says there is no indication being ticklish is inherited. He has seen tickling across every culture. So imagine this. He studied tickling across cultures and says the behavior is often informed by social norms, taboos, and the setting in which it takes place, which, by the way, would be my theory. He says then, if someone is really angry, you can't tickle them. Um, talk about that, the setting. So I think that the, the non-inheriting part of it is, is so fascinating, right? Because you often hear people say, oh, I'm ticklish because my dad is so ticklish, you know, and it's just never, there's no link proven. There's no, he said, I wish I could just, you know, take the ticklish part of your feet and, and bisect it, dissect it. And I'd find like a whole bunch of neurons affiliated with the tickle response, but it's just not there. They have, it just doesn't exist. And even though, um, and actually he's seen ticklish across, being ticklish across um, every single culture, um, yes, and also in, in lemurs. He said he's seen videos of lemurs that seem to have a human-like response to being tickled. Um, and you've seen it with, like, your dog, your cat. I mean, they seem to, like, enjoy it. I don't know if it's the same quite response, similar response, but not quite the same. But um, but what is so important is the situation. So tickling, unlike many other of our responses, is so situational. So if you're if you're if you're you're in love with somebody and you're having a, a moment and you're looking into each other's eyes and then he like caresses your face, you know, you might tickle and giggle and it feels good. If you're in the middle of a heated argument and he does the exact same thing, you're it's, you're not gonna feel that same Oh yeah, I, I've like, tried that. I, I, I've tried that one. That doesn't work. That doesn't. My wife doesn't let me do that. That that doesn't get me anywhere. Let me share this from you. It's not going to break the argument. That's for sure. Not breaking the argument. Maybe breaking a bone in my body. Actually, I got to be careful when I when I get too clever. Elbow. Exactly. So most people you wrote here also aren't able to tickle themselves. And here's where the doctor says something interesting. When you go to tickle yourself, your brain is sending a message to the tickling hand and a copy is going to the cerebellum, which sends inhibitory signals to dampen the sensation. We know this because people who have damage to their cerebellum are able to tickle themselves, says Dr. Linden. Now, this is really fascinating. I've never actually tried to tickle myself. I went ahead and actually did try, and I couldn't. And I am still very ticklish. We'll get to that in a second. Talk about why, as people get older, they, are lo- they tend to lose the ticklish sensation they once had. Well, first of all, the, the, the not being able to tickle yourself thing is so interesting because basically what's happening is, and this is again evolutionary, so you're walking down the street and your clothes are kind of rubbing against you and they're kind of tickly if you were to think about it, Mm -hmm. but you don't think about it because you have to think about, well, am I being attacked? What food do I want to eat? Who do I want to mate with? So our bodies, our minds have evolved to take that signal of um, your clothes rubbing against your body, just as an example, or your hand moving toward your wrist to caress it and damp sends uh, that copies that message and sends it to your cerebellum and says, just don't think too much about that. It's not important. Focus right. on, you know, mating and finding food and shelter. Right. Um, so that's why you can't really tickle yourself. Um, as far as getting older, um, you know, it's not totally proven, but the feeling, the thought is that as starting at age 20, you start to lose a little bit of your nerve endings on your skin as you get older. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's very small, like 1% a year. Right. So that 
old people maybe don't have any feeling of, of any sensation on the bottoms of their feet, which is one, one reason why maybe they fall more often. Um, it's just one of many, many reasons. But there's other responses that we, we, the nerve endings are no longer quite attuned to, like heat and cold and pressure and, and, and pain. And so, um, so as we get older, yes, we become less ticklish. It's just one of the many senses. Uh, that we that we that diminish as we get older. So I guess if you live to a hundred, like we're all going to live to hundred, we'll, we won't be hot, we won't be cold, awesome. and we won't um, be ticklish. <laughs> <laughs> There's some good things come of this. Won't feel pain, maybe. <laughs> some good Heidi, things come of it. <laughs> Heidi, we are we are we love this. Uh, email us when you have stories like this. Heidi Mitchell, tickling the Wall Street Journal. Go figure. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Back with more after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and you're listening to Billy Joel's Piano Man, and we're talking about the Piano Man himself, because on this day in history, on May 9th, in 1949, he was born to Howard and Rosalind Joel, and shortly after he was born, the family moved to a section of America's famous first suburb, Levittown, on Long Island. Although his father was an accomplished classical pianist, it was Joel's mom who pushed the young boy to study piano. He began playing at the age of four and showed an immediate aptitude for the instrument. By the time he was 16, Joel was already a pro, having joined his third band before he could drive. It wasn't long before the artist, inspired by the Beatles' iconic Ed Sullivan Show performance, committed heart and soul to a life in music. He dropped out of high school to pursue a performing career, devoting himself to creating his first solo album with Columbia Records' Cold Spring Harbor in 1971. It was a dud. And then came his second record, which we just played, Piano Man. And throughout the years, Joel has become known for his willingness to hold Q&A sessions with fans in settings across the globe. Here, Billy is asked about the story behind this iconic song. At Harvard University in 1994, here's his answer. Yes, go ahead. Um, one of my favorite songs is Piano Man, and I was wondering what exactly the story is behind all of the lyrics, even though it's somewhat self-explanatory. Okay. <laughs> All of the characters in that song actually were real people. John at the bar was this guy named John, and he. <laughs> And he was at the bar. There was Davy was in the Navy, and probably still is, you know. 
And let's see, the waitress is practicing. The waitress is actually my first ex-wife. <laughs> well, I have to get used to first ex-wife and second ex-wife now. It's a new thing. But, um... Let's not even get into that. Okay, so she was a cocktail waitress while I was uh, playing the piano at this place for a while. And uh, let's see, what else happened in that song? And the waitress prank things. As the businessmen stole, they get, businessmen actually got stoned in the place. They're sharing a drink, they call it better than drinking alone. Right, okay. A real estate novelist. Okay, good question. Paul is a real estate novelist. Paul was this guy who was a real estate broker, but he was writing the great American novel. And Paul was always saying, I'm, gonna, I'm writing a book. I'm writing a book. I'm writing the great American novel. You know, Paul, what do you do, like, you know, normally? Well, I, I, real estate. So that's a real estate novelist. Explains that. Let's see, what else? It's nine o'clock on a Saturday. Okay. Regular, regular crowd shuffles in. Old man sitting next to me, making love to his tonic agent. Okay, a little, little bit of poetic license there. <laughs> Wasn't really making love to his tonic and gin because that could be pretty gross, actually. <clears throat> he says, son, can you play me memory? I'm not really sure what goes. Saying a sweet note, completely uh, younger man's close. Okay, he didn't rhyme, actually, when he, when he said it. But he essentially asked me, you know, can you sing an old song? Oh, la da 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 la da 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 Self-explanatory. Sing a song, piano man, sing a song. Okay. Uh, now, John, the bar's friend of mine, gets me my drinks for free. True. Free drinks. The gigs suck, but free drinks, hey, you know. Uh, and he's quick with a joke. He was quick. He was, he was always telling a joke. Light up your smoke. I used to smoke. I did this gig for six months, and people would come up to me and go, you're too good for this place. What are you doing here? Why don't you... I can get you a record deal, because everybody in Hollywood is, is an entrepreneur. I can get you a deal. I can hook you up with a producer. I know a producer. Everybody in, in, in Los Angeles is a producer. I don't really know what a producer is. I, I thought it was somebody who produces. But produces what, you know? In Hollywood, they produce producing, you know? Um, you know, I produce sweat, really. I mean, we're all producers. Uh, we produce bodily byproducts, you know, we're all producers. So, uh, and they would say, what are you doing here? Man, what are you doing here? And I would say, oh, no, I love it here. I, I hate the music business. I don't want to be here. I was lying through my teeth, but I really didn't want to deal with another shyster, essentially, was what was going on. So, it was a true story. Um, and I thought, as I was playing in this gig, I said, I've got to write a song about this. I said, nobody's going to believe this. I've got to write a song about this. And essentially, that's where the idea came from. So, a very long answer to a very short question. Yep, he had left New York to move to Los Angeles, and he was working at the executive room on Wilshire Boulevard. He was the lounge pianist under the pseudonym Bill Martin. And what a great story about where this all comes from. He takes a big risk and heads out west. When we come back, we're going to talk about his trip back east, because he moves back. Say goodbye to Hollywood is what we'll come in with. 
turnstiles and forward to his first hit record, big hit record, The Stranger, The Life of Billy Joel. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. Now John at the bar is a friend of mine. He gets me my drinks for free. And he's quick with a joke or to light up your smoke. But there's some place that he'd rather be. He says, Bill, I believe this is killing me. As a smile ran away from his face. Well, I'm sure that I could be a movie star if I could get out of this place. Oh, la, 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 da, Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. That's Billy Joel, Say Goodbye to Hollywood. Turnstiles may be one of his finest records. And it's the record before his big, big breakout hit record. Up until then, Piano Man had been solid. Put him on the map for real music, folks. But what hit the charts, what really exploded his career, was a single. And it's a single you all know. And here's Billy Joel talking to Charlie Rose about the song Just The Way You Are. I put out something like four albums on Columbia Records before I had a successful hit album. Uh, I don't think people can do that anymore. I don't think a record company will stay with an artist for that long. Don't go changing to try and please me You never let me down before mm-hmm. Don't imagine You're too familiar And I don't see you anymore I would not leave you In times of trouble Never could have come this far mm-hmm. I took the good times I'll take the bad times I take you just the way you are And that album went on to be number two the next eight records, four were number one. And he's right. Today, no label would stick for an artist that stick with an artist that long. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to what we did with Amart Ertigan. Back when there were great label guys who stuck with artists and let them develop. 
And I, I believe today there would be no Billy Joel. Cold Spring Harbor would have come out, it would have flubbed, and that would have been it. See ya, next. And so, what a smart move by Columbia Records. Joel stayed there his whole life in gratitude, I believe, as Springsteen did and so many of the artists did there because they had real A&R guys. And Joel went on to sell 150 million records. Crazy. 13 albums, 33 top 40 hits, 23 Grammy nominations, a Library of Congress Gershwin Prize, ASCAP Centennial Award, really crazy, and of course the Kennedy Center Awards, which we're going to get to later, because my goodness, what a spectacular presentation some of the artists did honoring Billy Joel. Well, there was an interview with Dick Cavett in 1990 where Billy Joel talked about his cure for writer's block and also his ability to dream in music. My cure for writer's block is to dress like a writer, sort of some kind of Chopin-esque outfit with a scarf Mm -hmm. and something with some flair to it, some maybe even patches on the the jacket, elbows. He's not kidding, folks. No, I'm serious about this. And I go to a cafe or a brasserie, some some place you'd see a famous writer, perhaps writing or or pontificating or just the place where artists would be. And I sit at a table by myself. I order an espresso or a glass of wine. And I sit there and I look like a writer. I look, and I have my notebook with me and I have my, my pen with the pen poised or behind the ear or sometimes just licking the tip of the pencil, which is bad for the tongue. <laughs> but I'm now I've got all the, you know, to all appearances' sake, I am in the throes of writing. And the waiter will tiptoe over. Well, can I get you anything else, Mr. Joe? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. And obviously he's writing. And he'll tell the other waiters, don't bother him, he's writing. Mr. Joel is writing. And then there'll be a buzz around the room, people expecting me to be writing. And I actually kind of kickstart the writing process by everyone expecting me to write Uh and me feeling like such a writer. I'll actually fool myself into starting the process. But that's usually when I haven't been able to write lyrics. Mm -hmm. Music, I dream music constantly I always dream. I dream music some people dream scenarios they dream um, you know scenes and, and situations yeah. um, I don't dream like that I dream and in the abstract I dream shapes I dream colors and I dream music that's something I mean that tells you a lot right there I mean the guy dreams music you're gonna learn later in this hour that Joel more often than not comes up with the music first and that's where the problem occurs is how do, how do I get the lyrics to fit the music? And that's actually how Elton John and Bernie Taupin, well, they do it actually in reverse. Bernie writes the words and then Elton does the music. So go figure. Artists approach this in so many different ways. Here's Joel talking to Dick Cavett about how he hires other musicians to help him with the songwriting process who are there to just make sure he isn't copying a song he had already heard that was ris- written by someone else by accident. I wrote a song and lyrics, and it, and it, it brought it in, and I showed the musicians, and I went, Anthony works in the grocery store, saving his pennies for some man. I said, Isn't this great? And they went, That's Neil Sadaka's Laughing in the Rain. <laughs> and I was crushed. I said, Almost note for note. And I said, And I wrote lyrics. I spent the time and effort to even write lyrics to this thing. Well, I was. Yeah. Damned if I was going to throw away a perfectly good set of lyrics. So I finished out the song with a complete different melody. But I 
I'm glad I have musicians <laughs> around to help me catch that. I even have a musicologist uh, that I hire when I'm writing just to catch, making sure that I don't do it. You but knew of the other song. It isn't that you'd never heard it. It just didn't click. You know in what? Your head. I didn't even know that I knew maybe the song. Yeah. And then somebody played me the record, and I maybe I'd heard it once. The other night it occurred to me. I may start up a whole nest of hornets here, but uh, there is a, a soundtrack to the movie called Cinema Paradiso. Great soundtrack. But there's one part that goes da 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 da, and it's just starts just like I've never been in love before, but all at once. And I said, wait a minute, where have I heard this? It happens all the time. I think there are. I've even found Beethoven lifting Mozart, but the intention was different, and he didn't follow through on it. Of course, I don't know if their lawyers talk to each other anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Only in Vienna. Well, they're decomposing right now, anyway. And they are, but it's been happening through the centuries. Artists lifting, and no rim shot. Artists stealing from one another without knowing they're stealing. Highest compliment in some odd ways. And here's Billy Joel talking to Dick Cavett about his songwriting process, saying that the minute you try to write a hit song deliberately, you've actually defeated the songwriting process itself. I've never sat down and said, I'm going to write a hit. I, it would be like writing a beer commercial. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. I write what I want to hear. I write what I want to do. And I put it on an album. And I write it in tandem and in conjunction with a whole bunch of other songs. Now, I give that album to the record company. And the record company says, we want to put this out as a single. I say, well, go ahead. I wouldn't know a hit single if it came and smacked me in the face. But I think what happens is people hear a particular recording out of context with the other songs that are around it and assume, oh, he just wrote this one song just to be a hit record. And that's not what happens. Not with me, at any rate. I wish sometimes I could sit down and write a hit record, to be perfectly honest, to shut a lot of people up. If you could do that and also produce the formula for how to write one, uh, you, you would have a best-selling... Yeah, but I think the minute you've tried to write a hit, you've, you've defeated the, the songwriting process it's itself. Like setting out to make a masterpiece towards uh, yeah. itself. That's right. So here's the guy who wrote hit after hit after hit after hit, and his advice to folks who are trying to write hits, don't try to write a hit. And by the way, he always wanted to be a teacher, felt obligated and thus, you're going to be hearing, you already heard a clip of a Q&A at Harvard in 1990-something. You'll hear in the next segment a Q&A about how the song Lullaby came to be. Because in the end, he was always touring around the country periodically with just a keyboard in smaller venues at colleges mostly, talking to young people who all still know and love his music. And they show up at his concerts all the time, explaining how he does what he does and trying to teach the next generation about what it takes to do what he does, the craft of songwriting and singing and performing. This is Lee Habib, the life of Billy Joel, for the hour, born on this day in history, and this day in history always brought to you by Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to see their great, great online courses.
Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of Billy Joel being celebrated this day in history, brought to you by Hillsdale College, the best place in this country to learn about all the finer things in life, from the arts to the humanities and to the political formations of this great country. And by the way, what you learn at Hillsdale is that this patent right in the first article of the constitution our founders guys like benjamin franklin were thinking about well the people like billy joel down the road because billy owns his publishing and my goodness what would the world be like if he didn't where would the artistic and create and and and, and this creativity come from if the writer couldn't own his work and we've learned that over and over again as we celebrated the life of sinatra and those songwriters and this is one of the greats billy joel born on this day in history and You know, at a time when guitars were driving everything in music, well, this guy was playing the keyboards. And in this clip from 1977, which we dug dug up, a young Billy Joel talks about comparisons between that other guy who was famous at the keyboard, Elton John, and another guy who was just highly regarded behind the keyboard, very different stylist, Leon Russell. Let's hear from Billy. Elton really broke the piano pop barrier and he became the the definitive piano rock artist and anybody who became known after him was compared to Elton John Uh, I don't play the same way he does Elton's style is is, uh, very rhythmic you know Like Leon Russell is another guy he used to get comparisons to, um, and he's more like gospel, you know. All right, Ooh, you know. And my style is probably uh, it's more five finger, more movement stuff. Um, I, I took a while for people to to get away from using the Elton John comparison. I think it's pretty much died down at this point. Mm-hmm. I hope so. Please. Please. Hey. Give me a break. Give me a break. And just a New York kid. And again, he moves out to Los Angeles. Then he comes back to New York. And by the way, if you'd ever seen him perform, seen the lights go out on Broadway after 9-11, I mean, the lyrics were eerie, and it was a really tough song for him to perform at Madison Square Garden, where, by the way, his, his consecutive number of shows, 12 in a row, was a record, and his number is retired at Madison Square Garden. The only non-athlete who has a number hanging from the rafters. Pretty remarkable on the performance level. Let's get back to the songwriting, because I told you that he does these Q&As, and he did one at the University of Pennsylvania. And there was a fantastic moment where towards the end, Billy took questions from the audience, and a woman asked him 
how her favorite song, and a young woman, easily 25 to 30 years younger than Billy, she wanted to know about her favorite song, Lullaby, and how it came to be. And here's Billy Joel explaining it. All right, so I had this, 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 uh, this melody... how I write songs. I, I wrote the music first. She goes, Daddy, what happens when you die? So I said, oh, man. Okay. And I told her what I really believed. And what I really believe is what happens when you die is you go into other people's hearts that you never really go away. You go into the rest of the people that you knew, you go into the rest of their lives. They, they take them with you. So, uh, but also this was during a time when her mom and I were splitting up. So this was like a double-pronged thing like, Daddy, are you going to leave me? And I said, I'll never leave you. I'll, I'll ne- I will never leave you. I'll never go away. I will never, never, ever leave you. So um, it, it, was, it was a tough answer, you know, in, in both respects. So I'm trying to remember when, when I was writing it. So he struggles a little bit more, and he's actually tearing up. You can tell this is a really hard song for him to sing, and this is the thing about music in the end and a story. And think about this. He's, he's really trying to solve a problem. That's what brings him to this song. So let's go a little bit further down in this master class. Here's Billy Joel again. questions for another day I think I know what you've been asking me I think you know what I've been trying to say I promised I would never leave you and you should always know And there you have it, Billy Joel answering his little girl's question with a song. He continues through the second verse, and as he gets through the end, he has a, almost a breakdown. He starts to cry. He starts to pull away from the microphone. It's so emotional. It's so intimate. He never gives this explanation of the song when he's at Madison Square Garden. But here it's just him, a keyboard and a couple of thousand people. Well, he comes back to the keyboards and shares the stunning final verse of this song again for his little girl. Good night, my angel, now it's time to dream And dream how wonderful your life will be Someday your child may cry And if you sing this lullaby Then in your heart there will always be a part of me
gone, but lullabies go on and on. They never die, that's how you and I will be. And there you have it, a master teacher, a master storyteller. Well, this is one of my favorites. It's one of also Jesse's musician heroes' favorites. And so let's listen to Billy tell another great story. This is one of the most beautiful compositions and one of my favorites and my wife's as well. In every We'll be back with more from Billy Joel. This day in history, the great musician and writer was born. More after this. It seems I only felt the thorns. And so it... Some folks like to get away. On the Hudson River line I'm in a New York state of mind This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories for the hour, the life of Billy Joel born on this day in history brought to you as always by Hillsdale College a great institution, a great place for higher learning where you study all the finer and more beautiful things in life in 2013 billy joel was honored at the kennedy center the highest award you can get in the arts to introduce him tony bennett we came of age with the legacy of the great american songbook created by george gershwin jerome kern the great Cole Porter, and interpreted by Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Nat King Cole, and then myself. (laughs) The whole world loves these songs, but times change, and there was an opening for another songbook. Enter Billy Joel. Billy's an exciting performer who can move 
and electrify audiences. He does it singing the songs of Billy Joel. Great songs on subjects from love to war, from triumph and to loss, and stories about ordinary people with extraordinary emotions. And he puts them to tunes that you can't get out of your head. What a thrill it was for me to perform with Billy in front of 110,000 of our fellow New Yorkers at Say Stadium singing his New York State of Mind. Billy Joel. <laughs> Billy Joel is no less than a poet, a performer, a philosopher, and today's American songbook. Wow. Passing the torch along and accepting it, and out came the performances first. That great crooner, Don Henley. Ladies and gentlemen, Don Henley. She's got a way about her. And coming up next, an unlikely country artist to sing Billy Joel's Allentown. Ladies and gentlemen, Garth Brooks. Garth knocked it out of the park. In fact, the comment sections underneath the video and go and go and search it on YouTube and just put in Billy Joel and put in the Kennedy Center and you're going to see, I don't like Garth Brooks, but, and here's why this is Garth performing Goodnight Saigon. Take a listen. No cameras to shoot 
And the audience is going crazy because a bunch of Vietnam veterans came out and sang that song. And Joel had to fight back the tears. I think Garth connected with his song because Joel was writing about his people. Out-of-work miners. Guys not lucky enough to get a deferment from the draft. The working class people is what Billy always wrote about and with whom he connected the most. And now we're going to set up as we leave this hour celebrating the life of Billy Joel because I think it may be his very best composition Down Easter Alexa, not a hit, but boy, when he plays it in concert, it stops the show. And the song is about the fishermen of Long Island being driven from their homes. And it's a, it's a song he knows well because he is a Long Islander. But it's a song we all know, and he's writing about people who are just struggling to get along in this modern economy. Some are doing great, and some aren't doing as well. And Billy always, as a writer, is always rooting for the underdog, always writing about the underdog, and doing it with emotion and with great power. Let's take a listen to this great composition. the hour, the life of Billy Joel, born on Long Island, writing about Long Island. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib.
Resucitou 